and welcome to the Wild Health podcast sponsored by Telstra Health. My name is Jeremy Nibbs. This week we're chatting to interim ADHA CEO Bettina McMahon. Bettina actually resigned as CEO of the agency late last year after nearly 10 years with the organisation. But following the sudden resignation of former CEO Tim Kelsey soon after she resigned, for her sins, she was asked to do the CEO job until they found a longer-term replacement. As COO, Bettina was very hands-on in key agency projects, key among them secure messaging. Bettina, what's the difference between being a COO and a CEO? Hello, Jeremy. The key difference is that um, a CEO is is the vision-setting um, contact with the board, with stakeholders, and and ultimately the leader and um, and contributor to to the country's delivery of, of digital health and and the, the transition to the digital health reform. The COO, on the other hand, is responsible for making sure that the operations of the agency, the mechanics of the organisation, pull in behind and can deliver on that strategy. So as COO um, in the organisation here at the Digital Health Agency, you're a key member of that executive team in setting the strategy, but but you often feel like you're the black hat in the room, um, describing why things aren't as straightforward to deliver as they need to be, and then accepting that challenge to actually bring the organisation along. So. If you're an interim CEO, how much of that CEO role uh, do you do and, and how much have, have you done, do you think? Very good question. When I um, had my first board meeting with the agency board in February, when I started in, in the C, interim CEO role, I tried to set out with them what their expectations were of me in this interim role, because you're quite right, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to start carving out whole new strategies and, and new visions with stakeholders, because it is a temporary role while the board selects an ongoing CEO and, and fills that. And that would be the role of the incoming CEO with the board chair. So the discussion I had with the board in February was, well, what is the sort of contribution that I can make in um, in this short period of time? And and what we agreed was uh, there were there were three areas. One was to continue the delivery of the current year's work plan. So we had a work plan agreed for the current financial year, and it was to make sure that that was delivered um, to time, cost and quality parameters. The second thing was to... Um, support the organisation to continue the work on maturing our processes, improving our culture, making it a better place to work for the people here. Uh, So really that organisational excellence was to continue that internal work. And so I've been able to accelerate a bunch of that um, because I've I've been here for quite a while and so I'm well-placed to do that. And the third thing was to really prepare things so that an incoming CEO has some clear air that um, there's no you know, annoying loose ends that should have been um, dealt with in terms of work program or funding or, or those bits and pieces so that when an incoming CEO comes in, they're able to fully accelerate into that visionary and strategy participation. So you're the interim CEO after being the long-term COO and then COVID-19, probably the biggest discontinuation in uh, discontinuity in uh, digital health and health ever in Australia hits. Um, does that, has that changed how you've had to operate in in a sort of an interim, because what you seem to be describing there is COO, stroke, get ready for the new CEO, but you've been faced with probably, um, you know, the biggest change in the history of digital health in Australia while you're there. 
the best laid plans, hey? So I had it all worked out, um, thought it was really clear what my marching orders were and was ready to, to deliver on those. And then, of course, um, we get this disruption, which, um, you know, I mean, disruption in a positive sense for digital health. It's the opportunity we've all been waiting for, which is to have a healthcare sector and a community who's really receptive to using to using digital tools in the delivery of healthcare. Um, and it's been fantastic to see the people actually seeing the benefits, you know, um, not always having to preach to the um, to the converted. And so so that's been that's been great, but um, it's such an opportunity that that we haven't wanted to squander that. And so it has meant that I've needed to pivot my activities, um, partly because my um, tenure has been extended, so I wasn't expecting to be here beyond June. Um, but it's taken a little longer to undertake the recruitment given um, the board members are all involved in healthcare and have been very busy. So the, the recruitment has taken a little longer than they expected. But it's meant that we've had to step up and actually do things um, in a far more overt way that we hadn't planned. So working with the Department of Health on some of those interim measures to make sure that healthcare services could still be provided safely, um, working with, with industry on some of the, the fast track initiatives. Um, so these were not things that we've planned, but you're absolutely right, Jeremy. I haven't just sat back and said, oh, well, you know, I'm just the interim and we'll just continue um, to the best of my ability. I've worked with the organisation to seize those opportunities so that uh, we can actually make the best out of this and make sure that the Australian healthcare sector and, and Australians can benefit from all the work so many of us in the industry have been working on in digital technology. So can you name a, a few examples of, of what happened where you had to be avert and you completely, and you pivoted and, and did things quite differently to achieve something that needed to be done? So one area that, that you and your listeners would be familiar with is electronic prescriptions. So this is a long program that we started a couple of years ago. We designed the architecture with industry around how electronic prescriptions and the active script list could work and appropriate roles for government and the standards and APIs, etc. So it's been a long time coming and there was an orderly program to deliver that. Um, when there was a more pressing need to have electronic prescriptions made available, um, then we had to work really quickly with industry to say, well, what can be delivered early? How do we chunk this down so that we can deliver some parts sooner than, than others? So a lot of that negotiation of understanding what the trade-offs were of not, for example, having the active script list in the initial releases, um, which will come later. And it was really working with industry because, frankly, industry are the ones who are providing the software here. So it was trying to coordinate that so that um, it all lines up with the, the government's priorities and the community's needs. So that, that was one. Um, another one that that maybe your listeners aren't as familiar with is is the current work. So it's it, there was the initial reactive stuff about how everyone pulled in and looked at well what do we all need to do to lessen the impact for people and, and our customers. Um, but the other part now is coming out of this, how can we make sure that the sector doesn't just snap back to the pre digital age here and you know go back to where we were in January. How do we embed some of the benefits and so you know, there's lots of people in healthcare talking about, you know, how can we continue some of the best parts of telehealth? How can we continue some of the better parts of exchanging information, whether it's through 
um, more secure electronic communication or um, or prescriptions or those types of things. So, so I see actually a lot of our work now that that I'm most proud of is actually working with those stakeholders to make sure that we can keep the best of things so that this whole thing isn't for naught. That we can come out of it over out of the other side and say, well, it was hard and there was some you know some really difficult things that that happened to to the country but but we can see a silver lining and see how it led us actually leap forward in some of the things we've all been working so hard on for for many years uh it feels like um practically that's splitting into um a vendor side and a government side and uh, a lot of people a lot of people are praising the government for how fast and um how how they've cut through so much red tape so quickly I had an example the other day with a department that did an amazing job and then I got on the phone with them and it felt like they were back to uh, late last year as soon as I was talking to them because COVID was winding down. What about the agency and government has to be embedded so you can retain some of the agility that you had during COVID-19? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Look, there's, there's some pros and cons to the way government operates in a crisis. Um, and I've been involved in a few. The most recent one was in the during the GFC when I was working with the financial services industry in a government role. And some of the pros when you're in that sort of environment is quick decision-making. And for people who get frustrated by bureaucracy like me, it's, it's just heaven um, to have the right people in the room, decisions made, getting on with things, investments made. It's, it's, liberating you know to see that that sort of change happen quickly but there are cons and and you see this in in inquiries and reviews that typically happen after these sorts of crises especially if lives are lost um, because the normal levels of due diligence and the timely and um, and orderly processes of government weren't followed sometimes things go go wrong it can be risky and so um, thank goodness I, I haven't seen any major things go wrong this time. Um, in fact, it all seems to be so far um, reasonably well managed. It's a good point. I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be much that has gone wrong. Does that say something to anyone in, in government circles about how they might have been operating and how they might operate moving forward? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things that we've been talking about um, to reflect on the approach and the learnings. Um I mean, one of them is, you know, after the GFC, and there were some things that, that um, you know, with some of those big stimulus programs that um, didn't go as well as they should have. And and so what happened was there were a number of reviews and, and there were reports published by the Australian Public Service Commission and others that all of us have read, you know, all of us in senior roles have read. And we've tried to understand and learn from that and, and some of the risks around, you know, just not documenting decisions, for example, and being clear about the risks and having them um, well understood by um, by ministers and others we've been able to address. And so I think, you know, just looking at the Prime Minister and his um, establishment of the National Cabinet was was something that hadn't been done um, in recent times anyway, and, and really was actually building on the learnings of, of how you can actually deal with a crisis um, in a less risky way. So that would be my first point. But the other one is um, I'm seeing now an ongoing appetite of some risk to um, to actually continue to embed some of this reform. So, you know, the topical one at the moment is telehealth because it's been so enthusiastically embraced by um, particularly GPs and, and consumers. And the government's open to 
to looking at how that may continue into the future. Whereas ordinarily, you, you know, if things had gone badly, it would be not sending in September and that's the end of it. But the fact that, um, that the minister and the government are considering, um, you know, are open to ideas demonstrates to me that um, there's an acceptance that things have been managed well and that we can actually manage in a crisis and make decisions quickly without all of the checks and balances normally apply and and things broadly went okay. There's been some criticism about some of the procurement um, and the, the methods adopted for that. Um, I accept that. Um, so, so that, you know, not everything's perfect, but look, decisions are made more quickly, I guess, in, in these sorts of circumstances. But um, but what are you, your views, Jeremy? I know you've got some views about getting stuff done and, and how government sometimes gets in the way of that. Um, well, the National Cabinet's been very interesting and, and I from what I can tell, they're trying to keep the National Cabinet and mm. you as an organisation, you did did or still do report to COAG, which doesn't seem to exist. How does that change? Is that, is that some sort of step towards a bit more of a federated health system where the states and the um, Commonwealth can work more closely, do you think? It could be. So for the agency, our governance is stipulated in a piece of legislation, the PGPA rule that establishes us. So, and that um, we have a board and, you know, we report to a minister, but it does refer to ARMAC, which was a COAG um, group. So, um, so does it, has it changed in the interim? And- nothing's changed yet for us because we've got the, the basic mechanics of a board, and a, which is an accountable authority in, in government parlance and um, with a responsible minister. So that's fine. But what the... The announcement by the Prime Minister about um, getting rid of COAG and and continuing the National Cabinet signals to me is that there's been a highly effective, productive relationship developed through that National Cabinet process in a way that perhaps COAG had once but um, had evolved in a way that it, it didn't recently. So, um so what it's signalled is is a willingness to actually build on that productive relationship that was established during that crisis and being able to get consensus, national consensus, in really difficult times when there are lots of self-interests, um, you know, having to be considered was extraordinary. And so so it's, it's a signal of, of a broader collaboration, which I think provides hope for something like health, which is, um, you know, is fragmented in terms of, Commonwealth, state, local, public, private, it's its an inherently fragmented type of system and so you need partnerships and collaboration to actually bring it together for consumers. And have you sensed anything in the upper echelons around health where people are, are, are looking at what's happened and looking at the National Cabinet and going, hey, should we maybe be looking at how this has been set up in the past? There's, there's definitely a lot of collaboration going on amongst state territory and the Commonwealth governments, um, even just at my level, at the operational kind of program level of, of prioritising investments and, um, and effort. So that's happening. I think when there's, when there's something like a, um, whether it's a project or a goal that everyone's working towards, like the Olympics of Sydney, you know, 20 years ago or, or a crisis like this, it, it does provide a clear, um, vision for everybody to work towards and it's 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 a really helpful thing to do so I think um the willingness not only to collaborate but the clarity of vision where we can all see the part that we can play um and then we're not contesting where we're trying to get to it's is really conducive to actually supporting those sort of partnerships going forward uh, the olympics is a great example i 
was telling a 19-year-old the other day, this this is just, I remember the Olympics was just like COVID-19. There was no traffic. There was, uh, everyone was actually fairly relaxed. Um, lots of police yeah, around. Of police. <laughs> Are you allowed to have a view on where telehealth is and where it's going at the moment? So practically at the moment, it's still going to sunset in um, September, September 30. It's not likely that it will. We don't know what form it'll be in. Are you are you able to give us an idea of what you think it should should look like? I can say that the um, the government is open to any ideas about how to improve healthcare. So there's been a number of people in the sector who've put forward um, suggestions. There's there's been a recent group that that Bern Gibbons facilitated, which which tabled a number of ideas and and pointed out some of the barriers. So so there's a lot of um, thinking and analysis going on and the government's really open to that it's you know and the agency in supporting the government is is not kind of saying forget it it's all going back so there's a real willingness to understand what the experience has been um, but also a, a reality check of um, there was some compromises made you know um, not everything's as secure as probably you'd want it to be going forward um, but but in a crisis you you know, compromises are made like this and the services were available. So so there's also some a dose of reality coming in to say, well, if something was to continue, what would we all want it to look like in the longer term where we've got the fullness of time to actually set something up? So that's the broad position of the government is that, that they're open to that and lots of people are um, advocating for, for different views. My personal view, um, Jeremy, is that just people are ready, whether it's healthcare providers um, or consumers or or other, you know, sort of employers, everyone who wants to keep people healthy, they've seen and they've experienced the benefits of digital health and telehealth has been a real focus of that. But for me, it's more than just a telehealth consultation, especially when it's a telephone call, you know, it's a it's an integrated digital experience. So it might be a telephone or video consultation, which is then supported by an electronic prescription or an electronic referral, which is then um, able to be sent seamlessly and accessible by the patient. And any results, if it's a if it's a pathology, you know, test referral that goes electronically, it's then having the results available. So it's actually moving to that next step. So for me, my personal view is telehealth isn't just the digital conversation or the consult between um, the, the GP and the consumer. It's the digital experience that leads from that, which I think is the vision that the agency has been trying to chip away at for all these years. So if you get, if telehealth moves forward substantively, which you could argue for, it's a giant stake in the ground for uh, strategy moving forward for the agency. It would be a real impetus for us to move beyond the conversation about digital health is in my health record, which a lot of people have have typecast the agency as, oh, yeah, that's right, you guys do that. And, of course, we do operate the my health record, but um, our, our objective is to have a connected healthcare system in Australia um, using digital tools and technology for the benefit of, of Australians and their health outcomes. So it's been a massive mindset where now you'll have the barbecue conversation and I can say digital health and people say, oh, right, you're doing that. Whereas before they'd say, well, what's that? And I'd try to describe and, and they'd still be looking at you blankly and you say, and we operate the My Health Record and they go, oh, right, yeah, I know what you do. So I think that understanding at a, at a community level about some of the benefits um, 
has really been the shift and is a massive opportunity, not just for the agency, but, but for all of the technology providers in the whole sector. Talking to some people who talk to the people at the top, um, there, there seems to be quite a, a good deal of surprise at how little telehealth cost and at least in the short term, how people are behaving around it. Did you notice anything in terms of people sitting back and going, wow, we never knew it was going to, we never knew it would look like this? I think that, um, you know, certainly my organisation and I'm sure people you've spoken to as well, sometimes perfect is the enemy of good. And when I look at all of the meetings, you know, we've been in talking about the standards to you know, required before we could even do anything like this, it becomes clear that um, that we didn't really need them. Now, I'm not saying that telehealth as it's operating now, which at a base level is just a phone call often, so that's not where we want to be. Um, but but sometimes we set the bar so high for ourselves that that we're kind of looking at, well, before we can do anything, it has to be a fully digital experience, whereas what we've seen is it doesn't have to be that to begin with. It can be pretty rudimentary and have some incremental improvements along the way. So so that's been the main thing I've I've seen is that it can actually be easy when you don't make it too hard. Yeah, so there seems to be a very big lesson there in that you can step out uh, into the deep water and and just check yourself and iterate, um, make sure you've got a life, you've got a life vest, but check yourself and iterate because the the experience of telehealth seems to have been that no one believed that it would operate in the way it did and it would cost what it's costed. You're right about a lot of things going forward with it. Do you think in a similar way, because you've mentioned the security of telehealth, is secure messaging, do do people now look at secure messaging a little different now that we've seen a lot of workarounds, which at least in the short term appear to have had no problems whatsoever, just really basic workarounds like... uh, photographing your barcode and sending it to the chemist? There's some stopgap things we've done in a hurry to make things available like that, and they've been perfectly adequate for addressing the immediate need. But but some of the limitations of those solutions mean that they just wouldn't scale or they take away consumer choice, like, like some of the initial um, electronic prescription changes made which allowed the um, prescriber to send directly an electronic like an email version or you know text to the pharmacy meant that the consumer didn't really have a role in presenting the script at the pharmacy and look it may not seem like a big deal but but at the moment Australians have that paper token and they can go wherever they want and the prescriber doesn't need to know and and that's something that you know in the longer term we'd want to retain so I think um for something like secure messaging, yeah, there's been some um, immediate things that have been done to meet the need. And I think it's shown everybody that there are some edge cases, like a lot of the time in my organisation, we talk about the, you know, we spend 80% of the time talking about 20% of the use cases because they're really complex edge ones. And sometimes saying, look, we're just going to focus on the 80% and accept that there's, we're not going to solve all the problems to begin with. But we'll at least kind of get that stake in the ground as you describe it to at least take a step forward. So I think um, with with the secure messaging, we do want to look to the future of well, what is um, what is more secure? Um, because some of the 
the technologies don't have the level of security that we think is warranted for sensitive health information in the longer term. So um, that is something we'd need to do. And then also the interoperability, like making sure that there is choice for both healthcare providers over the systems they use, that it's, you know, removing the requirement to have, you know, select one system if you want it to work with with the others, that you should have the choice to select from the market and it should plug and play and work with the others. The same for consumers. You know, consumers shouldn't have to download different apps to have a video conference. They should be, you know, it should be really easy for them. So there's some of the things that um, we do think are important but but weren't critical in the first months. But do, do you think, I, I look at um, electronic prescriptions and, and you're on a path to have a, for us to all have a token on our phones and, and that replaces the paper and that's absolutely ideal and it and all will happen. In a sense, what um, COVID did was was a manual test of it, just to check. Yep. But from a yep. more holistic point of view around secure messaging, we seem to have been bogged down for, you know, a 10 years even with, with some of the problems that you feel like if you lift up and look down on what's happened during COVID, maybe there should be a, a review of how how the country's treating secure messaging, it feels almost like cart before the horse on actual interoperability. What do you think? Yeah, and if you if you listen to someone like Dr. Nathan Pinsky, who's been heavily involved in in helping us through this this challenge of scalable national um, secure messaging, he was even saying at the beginning, "Look, I'm not even sure we need to bother because it's just still happening, and we're using these other means." But um, and and there is some insight in that 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 maybe we'd over engineered some parts of it. Maybe, um, you know, there were areas where we didn't need to standardise, and the market could figure it out itself. But the challenge has been to date we weren't there yet. Um, and and I think some of the commercial models, maybe some of the the businesses at the time, were willing to. I, I know a number of the vendors were offering services for free um, out of goodwill and and ethical practices which they wouldn't necessarily consider after an initial crisis. So so some of the, I guess, lubricant to make some of those deals work um, uh, will disappear because commercial arrangements will need to kick in. So I think what we're doing now is looking at, well, what's the role of government? We're absolutely committed to getting national scalable secure messaging. Um, we still think the service registration assistant, which is a piece of national um, infrastructure we can operate to support the update of directories, for example, to take out duplication and um, administration from the system um, is the right solution. Um, but, but yeah, as for maybe some of the wringing of hands about some of the, the edge cases, we might be able to say, well, look, in hindsight, that's a nice to have and not an absolutely necessary to get where we need to. Do you think then that if, if you look at all these quite substantive um, lessons we've we've been learning and, and and some of the ways we've been approaching things does the agency have to go in and relook at its seven pillar strategy and maybe reset it in a short period of time with a new C, with a new CEO and if that's going to happen what's your role in that I think the whole health sector is is now looking at what's the next step in our own strategy whether it's private hospitals or or software organisations, public health systems. Um, and the same, you know, is, is true for us. And we're also at this pivotal point of having a new CEO coming in soon who will have um, a mandate to look at what the organisation is doing, what it's achieved, how we measure success, 
what our impact is and what it needs to be. So, so we're not planning at this stage on um, re-prosecuting or, or re-consulting on the, the National Digital Health Strategy. Um, but what I, I am expecting is that we'll look at, well, what are the opportunities that, and what have we learned from this? What does the country need of digital health? And, and how can that be our focus? And then almost the secondary part is, okay, and, and is that out of step with the strategy? Now, if it is, then, then there'll need to be some work to, to realign. But, but I think rather than starting with the strategy and a big discussion about what that should be, it will be looking at, well, what does the country need of us? And, and then realigning from there. In the context of where we are now. That's right, of where we are now, yeah. of what the appetite is. So we've seen a dramatic shift in attitudes of some of the healthcare provider groups who were quite hostile to digital, uh, like, you know, specialists. They are great users of technology. Some of the devices and, um, and different technologies they've used have been fantastic, but they haven't been big supporters of clinical information systems or any sort of telehealth or, or other types of things until now. And when we surveyed them, in, in April, the back end of April, for some groups, 100% of them um, supported statements that they were very open to using digital health technologies more. So um, so we've seen that attitudinal change and, and we want to make the most of that and use this opportunity to drive digital use. Yeah, I think um, when I was talking about strategy, the, the worst thing would be to go, oh, no, we have to restart, restart again. Yeah. I think I was, yeah. I was more thinking hey, there's some things we don't need to do now or we need to do these things harder and these, obviously this doesn't work as well. And that's the sort of, I mean, you want a much more practical change. I mean, the whole thing about COVID was practicality, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, one example is is a pillar in the digital health strategy is um, workforce education. And so part of that for us in the past had been um, raising the sense of urgency. It had been actually advocating to clinical peaks and to different practitioner groups the need to actually consider digital in the way that healthcare services are provided. Now, getting that message across right now, yes, that's been done for us. So so we don't need to focus on that anymore so much. It's now about, well, what are you doing and how can we move that to the next level for improving health outcomes, whether it's through your own planning and, and segmentation and servicing of your um, of your patients or whether it's convenience um, or whether it's you know other quality improvements so it's changed the nature of what we're doing so workforce and education is still you know absolutely a key but the sorts of things we were doing before have changed. Um, Bettina I was going to ask you if you've enjoyed being CEO but I'm just going to guess that um, with COVID-19 and everything that practically had to be achieved and, and so many things being said yes to, you would have loved it. Uh, you would have loved the experience. So, um, but you were talking about before of, of having a change. Um, are you going to, do you think you're going to stick around in digital health? And if so, in what way? So I'll answer the first question first. Yeah, look, you are right. It's, um, for me, I'm, I love reform. And so to be working in an area which has had massive transformation where government has played a pivotal role has been, you know, it's it's the best opportunity any sort of public servant who likes change can ever hope for. So in that sense, I've loved it. Um, it's been, it's not been easy, but, um, but you know, you don't do these jobs for, for a free lunch and, you know, for an easy ride. So, um, so I have really enjoyed it from that perspective. Um, would love to stay in digital health, um, would love to stay in health, but, um, you know, in the current circumstances, um, 
beggars can't be choosers. So I need to look at, at sort of opportunities across government and across um, other sectors as well. So I haven't found another job yet um, that can, that will have to pick up soon um, as I as I get out into the big wide world and look at what the next 10 years holds. So you're looking for another job. You're not a candidate. No, no, I no, I wasn't. A, I didn't apply for the CRL. I decided last year that I was ready for a change. Yep. And and while you know the economic circumstances, you have to take a deep breath to say no. I'm still ready for a change. Nothing had changed um, for me in terms of my personal circumstances. So um, so no, I won't. I, I'm absolutely interim in this role. And that might be digital health loss. I think. Um, Patina, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jeremy. If you've enjoyed this Wild Health podcast, there's a lot more on our website at wildhealth.net.au and lots of news and analysis on digital health as well. Thanks to our parent publication, The Medical Republic, to Peter Birch and Talking Health Tech, to our producer, Talia Mayer of Its Cats, and to our principal sponsor, Telstra Health. See you next time. 